On today's More Than a Test podcast, we have Dr. Maria Vasquez. Dr. Maria Vasquez is the superintendent, the top job at Orange County School District in Florida. If you haven't heard of Orange County, you're alone because they are the ninth largest school district in the country. They're located in Orlando, so I'm sure you can imagine just how many different interesting things happen for them. She has done just about every single job at Orange County Public Schools and then let and worked her way up until she was tapped to be the superintendent. She tells us a lot about the different roles she's had, include telling us that being a principal was actually the hardest thing she's ever done and gets deep and dirty with the politics of being the superintendent in Orange County. Maria, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can't believe you made time for us because it is almost the beginning of the school year and you are the superintendent of Orange County in Florida. Tell us about Orange County. Oh, I know that I keep asking myself, where did the summer go? So Orange County is located in central Florida in Orlando. Um, we are the eighth largest school district in the country with just over 208,000 students and slightly over 24. 5,000 employees with 210 schools. Um, it is a, a thriving district with a great deal of community support and partnerships. And we are just so blessed to be able to work in collaboration with uh, our community partners to educate our very diverse population over 77% of our students qualify for free or reduced meals. Um, our mm -hmm. students uh, come from 162 different uh, countries. Uh, we have uh, a very, very diverse population that we are so proud to serve. And um, they come from all walks of life. Uh, and we serve children who uh, come from very affluent homes and students who are homeless students who are highly gifted and students that have significant disabilities. And it's just a beautiful tapestry of children that uh, I am very honored to serve as superintendent. Wow, that, that you just painted just such an incredible picture of just how much diversity you serve. And, and you are sitting at the top of that. You are, you know, like what, uh, like Julia Raphael Baird likes to say is the top job, right? Which means you have a very public position. And I'm sure a lot of people think they know what you do. But when you wake up, like what do, like when you woke up today, what are the things that are on your mind? What are the kinds of things that happen every day for you? So uh, top of mind is always school safety and making sure that our schools and our work locations are places where uh, people feel safe, supported, and successful. So that's something that is um, always with me. Additionally, we are still seeing the impact the uh, pandemic has had on our, our community. And I, I think that's going to linger for several years as we're seeing that across the country our focus on making sure our students are not only getting the academic supports that they need, but also the supports that deal with resiliency and mental health and advocacy. Uh, and those two go hand in hand if we're really going to see that our, our students are successful. Additionally, as I mentioned, we're, we're so blessed to have great partnerships. And so a lot of what I do is work towards ensuring we have all of the resources and supports that we need 
uh, to be able to educate um, our, our our students. And my day consists of a lot of bit of meetings. Um, I also uh, visit uh, schools. Uh, I do a lot of collaboration with various uh, businesses and organizations uh, as we try to expand pathways that our students have that really allow them to tap into their strengths and their interests as they're thinking long term, what is it that I want to do. We want our children to be able to graduate and have choices as to what they can do um, as they are stepping into that next phase uh, in their life. And so it's a, it's a great job. I love it. Uh, and I love the people that work with me and those that are in our community. It's a great job, but you just mentioned a lot of things I would like to hear a little bit more about. So the first thing you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned was resources, right? As we know, a lot of, you know, the funding that has, that happened during the pandemic to help recover schools, like that's going away. ESSER's funds are on the way out and thing, and things like that. How are you finding new resources or are you finding new resources to make sure your students have what they need? We um, definitely have benefited from those additional dollars that came from the federal government and yes, they are expiring um, in 2024. And trying to see how some of those dollars are going to be replaced um, is, is, is a challenge. And so we have looked at data uh, on the various efforts and initiatives that we have had to see which ones really have given us the greatest return on investment and then we are looking uh, at multiple sources to be able to uh, fund those. Some of that will be coming from our general operating fund. Some of that may come from uh, federal dollars, either through Title I, Title II, Title III, or Title IV. And some we are looking at grants and uh, partnerships with uh, various individuals in our community. Um, we are... Um, we, we do know that uh, there is the potential of a funding cliff, uh, but we feel that we have prepared and are um, well situated to be able to deal with that, knowing that we have prioritized those initiatives and um, efforts that have given us uh, the best return for our investment for our students and our staff. You are, you're kind of downplaying it, but actually what you did is really cool because I don't think many districts did this. They, they were given all this money and they just went and spent, but you spent with really close attention to what is actually working and we're really tracking the data to see what is actually working. And I have to ask you because, you know, when you read, you know, the New York Times or some of the studies coming out, it sounds like nothing worked, right? All of these kids we're now looking at did not recover from COVID. So when you think about where you spent money and it actually worked, tell me one example. I don't need to know a lot, but tell me one example of something that really worked for you. So I can definitely say that our investment in mental health and resiliency efforts, uh, resources, uh, has has paid off. And so that has been the addition of guidance counselors, the addition of mental health counselors that actually uh, provide direct support to our students and our families. Uh, the trainings that we've been able to provide to our employees so that they recognize signs of, of mental health and then the resources that are available either through our school district 
or through our community to help families as they are dealing with uh, social emotional problems that um, are, are, are impeding our moving forward. And that would definitely be one uh, area that we will continue to prioritize and provide those uh, supports and resources. Is that a hard conversation in your district that like there are so many needs academically, but putting the resources in mental health and, and knowing even with the results, is that a hard conversation or does everyone mostly get that for, for your community? Um, well, you know, it's, I think individuals by and large understand that we have to address uh, mental health and resiliency needs. We have to help our students also learn to advocate for what, what they need. Uh, what's difficult sometimes uh, with some of our families is actually acknowledging that there is a, a problem. In, in some families, as you know, you know, mental health is taboo. And so we, we don't talk about it, we, we keep it quiet. And there's so much that we know now and there are so many resources available to help um, that really, if we can help our families and our students feel comfortable in advocating for the help that they need, we will be, we'll be able to provide the supports and the resources to them. And so I think that's really the hardest part about it is in some of our more fragile communities, just acknowledging that there is a need and then being open to the resources that can help them. I think, yeah, I think this is something that we've heard multiple times now on this podcast. It started with um, uh, Jean-Claude Brizard telling us that the, you know, like the leg of the stool that is often forget forgotten is families, right? And I think this happens a lot in school communities that we think we can fix everything in the school and we don't recognize that it's beyond what's happening in the classroom that students need help with and that we need to bring the families in as partners. And so I think you're speaking to something really important. But you started this conversation, you know, telling me about 210 schools. And I, I, I don't know if the number was 80 languages. It was a lot of languages. <laughs> how, how do you have a strategy around so many different needs, so many different kinds of kids, so many different people? Tell me about that. So really it starts with um, a school board that's committed, is committed to educating all of our students and making sure that each and every one of them has multiple pathways that will lead them to success. Um, and then the, our next step is really our strategic plan and making sure that our strategic plan is something that is a living, breathing document and that what it contains really is at the heart of our work. Uh, it, we are uh, very large. It's so funny. I've been in Orange County for over 30 years. And so when I interact with other superintendents and, you know, you're listening to their challenges and their woes, um, it's sometimes hard to think, oh, wow, they only have, you know, 50 schools or they only, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, we are large. Uh, we also have an incredibly supportive community that values that diversity and it really feels so often that we are like a small town. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we uh, had uh, two hurricanes last year, one that had a significant impact um, at one of our elementary schools where we literally, 
It was flooded and we had to move them to another school for the remainder of the year. The outpouring of support for that community from all across our district, books, resources, um, materials for the families, uh, it, was, it was incredible. And it just reminded me how very special Orange County is in that even though we're that large, everyone feels like they're, they're a family and they are connected. So, um, yeah, it is. Sometimes it's daunting when you think 210 schools, but it doesn't feel that way. It is so interesting listening to you talk about Orange County because, like, I think anyone who listens think of Orlando, they think of Disney, we think of Florida, all of those things. But what I'm hearing is, like, diversity and also natural disasters and, you know, large school needs, and, and you just kind of manage it all. How do you take care of yourself? And, again, to go back to Julia Raphael Baird, like, who's on your personal board table who sits there that helps you through these moments because I can't imagine any like you make it sound easy but I, I, I cannot imagine that having a school flooded and people going through these traumas is easy and you carry the weight of that so tell me tell me a little bit about that um, and I do have an incredible team that uh, works side by side uh, I have a chief um, a chief of staff I have a chief facilities officer uh, a chief financial officer, uh, a strategic officer, uh, chief academic officer, chief of schools, um, uh, chief operations officer, chief information officer. <laughs> You've got a good team. You've got a family of people who it's help right. you. They but again, it's still your people. shoulders. So what, like, what do you do? Uh, so I, um, I am very clear about what my expectations are. And they really are very, very simple. Um, my 30-plus year career has been founded on relationships and the power that uh, collaboration and building relationships has to impact the lives of, of others. And my team knows that. We work together. We know that together we are better. Um, I am not the one with all of the answers. Uh, and I, I value diversity in thinking and out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and they also know how important it is for us to really work hand-in-hand hand and understand what each of us, how each of us plays a role in educating that child, in ensuring that they are in a classroom where they do feel safe, supported, and successful each and every day. Um, and so I, I am very grateful that we all have a clear understanding of what our charge is and that they also know the power of collaboration and they demonstrate it each and every day in everything that they do. So they are an incredible support to me where they do help um, lift me up, especially on those days where the load uh, appears to be uh, heavier than others. And having finished my first year as superintendent, I can tell you that there were a few days where I thought, oh my gosh, this load is so, so heavy. And um, on each of those days, I was able to have uh, members of my team that 
help lift that load for me. You say it with a lot of humility, but to me, it sounds like what you're telling me is on, you know, the tough days and when it feels like you're really pulling, you, what you do is you focus on other people, whether it's them lifting you up or you lifting them up. It's about others, which I think is a lot of the message when you look at your career has been, has been about other people, which I think is really neat. I'm going to ask one more question about Orange County, and then I'm going to talk to you about a little bit more about you, because I think that there's a lot of interest in like what you've done as far as becoming the superintendent here and building, building your career in the same place. Um, so a, not that long, a little bit ago, I read Bob Iger's book about leading Disney. And when he wrote that book, the way, if you haven't read it, the way he frames it is the first chapter is about the little boy who was eaten by a, I don't know, alligator, crocodile, whatever, at a Disney park. And then he talks about the larger company and then ends talking about, again, this little boy. And I think what, what spoke to me as someone who's led schools is like, it doesn't matter how big your job is. It all comes down to like one kid. Would you agree with that? And how do you know when to focus on like the one kid and when to focus on the big company? How do you think about that? It's funny because I remember when that happened with um, the, the little boy and the alligator. And, and I do agree that um, every child is important. Every child makes a difference. And if you can make a difference with just one child, I, I think you're successful. Um, when we, when I think about Orange County Public Schools, I really am a fanatic about going back to every day having our students feel that they're successful, they're supported, and what does that look like? And um, I'm a second language learner, and I, uh, I won't speak too much about that because you may be asking me that later on, but I remember starting school, and I didn't speak a lick of English, and I was um, petrified. I was crying on that first day, and I didn't understand what people were saying to me, but I do remember my teacher and how she tried to calm me down, how she tried to make me feel comfortable and safe and that changed my whole outlook and it was her taking the time to invest in me and that has stayed with me my my entire life uh, it's about trying to provide service to others and um, in our schools when I walk around and I'm visiting classrooms and I'm talking to students or I'm talking to teachers I really try and listen, not with a solution in mind, but with uh, and I'm trying to understand where are they coming from, um, how has this come about, and how can I help, or how can I um, continue to provide that for them, and um, that has served me served me well. Um, at the end of the day, uh, when I'm making a decision that is complicated, a decision that is difficult, a decision that has controversy around it, I go back to what's best for kids. Um, and that helps me sleep at night. And I can tell you that there have been you know, a number of decisions that were not easy. And then I went back and I said, okay, so what's best for our students? That's why we're here. If the kids aren't here, I'm not here. We're not here. Um, and if I'm able to sleep at night, 
I know that that was the right decision, even though it made, you know, makes us uncomfortable or it created some type of angst. Um, I really appreciate that. In fact, what I'm really going to take from that little like vignette of what you shared about students and things like that is when you listen, you wonder how can you help? And I think that that's something anyone can do is they can listen with the mindset of how do I help in this situation? And I think that's really great. Um, one of the things I noticed in this conversation is when I ask you about like, what are we doing and, and what, what do you care about and stuff? You keep talking about this pathways about when students graduate from Orange County, you want them to have all these options, which in some ways is thinking about your students with the end in mind, right? Like we know they have to go K-12, but the reality is, is the goal is here at the end, they can go whichever direction they want. Right now, you're sitting as a superintendent in Orange County. And like you said, you've been in this district for 30 years. You've done a lot of jobs. I mean, besides janitor, I think you've done them all. <laughs> um, and so I'm wondering, was, did you begin with the end in mind? Did you always want to be the superintendent? Is that, was that the goal? No. That's funny. No, it was not. And uh, I'm going to preface this by saying that I know that um, I've had a, an incredible career and I have loved my work in each of those roles. So I started out, um, actually I started out as a chemical engineering major and switched um, in my junior year, the end of my junior year, but that's a whole nother story. Um, and so because I felt this calling um, to be a teacher. So um, I began my career as a classroom teacher and loved, loved, loved teaching. I got so excited. Um, and I, um, I worked in both Title I and non-Title I schools. What did you teach at the beginning? Um, so I taught elementary, and then I also taught secondary mathematics. Okay, um, and just engineering background helped a little yes, bit, right? Yes, nice. um, And so that, for me, was like, it was fabulous. Um, and then um, I had someone that visited my classroom and said, oh, my gosh, you, you just have such a knack, you understand reading, um, and they asked me to join um, the professional development team for English and language arts. And so I became um, a resource teacher that went across the district teaching about uh, literacy. Um, and then I had someone that said, you know, you're, you'd make a great administrator. And I said, oh, no, no, I have to go back to school. I, you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, but they, you know, they kept, they kept at me. And so I finally did. I, I went Wait, back. Do you know who it was, this person who told you to go become an administrator? Who was this? Yeah, it was Cleve Henry. He was a uh, senior director. He oversaw or supervised a group of principals. Um, and he just saw something in me. And I was able to um, get my master's degree and became an assistant principal and loved being an assistant principal. I said, oh my gosh, I could do this forever. Um, and then had the opportunity to become a principal at a K-8 school. Um, and that was the hardest and the best job I've ever had. Um, I came in at a time where there was controversy there. Um, so I learned so much about leading and really that's where, um, Time out. That was harder than the job you're in now, was being this K-8 principal. Because it was um, my first experience being a principal in a community that was going through a lot of controversy. Their principal um, had been removed, and I just thrown in and trying to 
run a school and at the same time heal a community. And that's really where um, I solidified my value of the importance of collaboration and building relationships. Um, I still stay in touch, and it's been over 20 years, with um, parents from that school, teachers from that school, and I've even seen some students from that school. Um, and it was, it was, I learned so much about leadership that I carried on through my entire, um, the rest of my administrative career. Um, and then I had, um, a mentor, uh, Kathy Pope, who, um, again, thought I could do more and, uh, pushed me into, uh, a principal leadership role where I um, supervised principals and loved, loved that job. <laughs> I think I and, see a theme. No matter what job you have, you love. Before you go on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you keep going, but I want to just tell you one thing I admire about you. I think it is rare that people are willing to say any job but their own is the hardest. And for you to look back and say that that principal job was harder than what you're doing now, I think is, is very rare. And I just want to appreciate how reflective and just how beautiful a statement that is. You And I'm not surprised they then tap you to do principal leadership and mentorship. And then? Okay, and then I was um, tapped to be a chief academic officer. And really, that's where I thought I would retire. I thought, I love this curriculum, and I'm having an impact across the entire district. Um so that's where I thought I was going to retire. And then um, I was tapped for the deputy superintendent position. And I was like, whoa, this is like incredible. Now I have an even larger impact. This is phenomenal. I'm going to retire <laughs> as deputy superintendent. It's great. And then COVID hit. And everybody's world turned upside down. And literally, we were learning to do everything new. And that's when um, Barbara Jenkins um, and a couple of other of my mentors said, you know, you can be a superintendent. You can lead this work. And, and that really was where it opened the door for me to seriously be thinking about the superintendency and the impact I could have um, at that large scale. And what I recognized during that time, COVID, is that it really is an still is an opportunity for education to hit reset. We've been doing schools the same way for so many years. And during the pandemic, we had to. We switched to virtual learning. We learned how to be more individualized with um, what students needed. We collaborated with agencies that we hadn't before because we needed to. Right. And so I thought, what an incredible time to be able to lead when there can be so much transformation that takes place in education. It's, I love that you said that. I think for so many people, it was such a stressful time. And I think um, so many times we've seen schools and districts just go back to the old way. And I think it's so cool the way you just see this as an opportunity and continue to say, okay, do we really need to do it the way we've always done it or could we do it differently? 
I want to just tap into a few things about your career, though. Um, the first thing that I heard you say is you got tapped to be uh, this chief academic officer and tapped to be the deputy superintendent. What does that mean? I think a lot of people hear those terms and they wish they could get into those roles and they're not quite sure what that looks like. What does it look like to get tapped for those things? It's a phone call. <laughs> they just call and say, hey, we, we think that you could do this. So... Um, my, the, the superintendent, right. Um, it, it literally was uh, a phone call, uh, about becoming the chief academic officer. And again, I had the fortune of being in so many different roles in Orange County, um, built a lot of relationships. And I, I think people saw the, um, not just the efforts, but really the heart and passion of, of the work I was doing to truly make a difference in the lives of, of our, our students. And I think that caught the eye of the deputy superintendent and the superintendent, as well as uh, our school board. And I was then able to move into those roles, but literally they were phone calls. Um, okay. And when you get that phone call, like, do you, did you automatically, like the door is open, I'm walking through, do you say you have to think about it? Like, who do you talk to? Like what, what, what happens for you in that moment? Um, so shock first, because the, it, I mean, it happens when you, when I didn't expect it. And so really trying to just process and, you know, sound like, oh, wow, this is good, you know, but not committing because obviously there's an impact to my family. And so um, being able to talk to, you know, my spouse about what this would entail, um, and really hearing, um, about what it could mean for me was very important. And so, um, after being able to talk to my husband, yes, it was a, a definitive yay. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Um, but I also believe uh, that my path, I've always, um, I always believe that, you know, God has had a hand in what um, I've done. And that has also really been very comforting because as surprised as I might have been, I always have felt that this was the path to take and whatever difficulties and challenges that would come of that were meant to be and were meant to help me continue to do this work for the students and families um, of Orange County. Um, but yeah, they were always, they were always like a phone call and I'm like, what? Uh, okay. <laughs> you, you, it's interesting. I'm sure that, you know, you, you mentioned coming to schools in Florida and, and not speaking a word of English. Right. And now seeing where you are, I'm sure if you had told that little girl, like, this is going to be your trajectory. This is, these are the things you're going to do. Maybe she had big dreams. I don't know. But, um, you know, what did your parents instill in you that really, led to you being able to like overcome for lack of a better word and, and end up in these great positions where people can see your contributions, believe in you and just keep tapping you, tapping you, tapping you. So, um, my parents really were extremely, uh, influential, um, in my life. 
Um, they immigrated here um, to the United States from Cuba, and literally um, they left everything they owned behind in order uh, to build a better future for um, their family. And so my sister and I were both born here in Florida, uh, and my, my dad did not graduate from high school. My mom did. And they believed that if they had had a more formal education, they would not have lost everything, that they would not have had to make this huge transition um, in their life. And so they instilled in my sister and I early, early on that education was the most valuable currency we owned and that we could not squander it. That was something that nobody could take that away from us. Um, and so we knew school was our number one priority. And because we knew how much um, our parents and our grandparents sacrificed, um, hearing the struggles that they endured and actually seeing, you know, my, my, my dad owned a hotel in, in Cuba and then comes to the United States and he's working in a cigar factory and in a restaurant, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but I could see how much how much angst and sacrifice and so we did we never wanted to let them down and we never wanted them to have made those sacrifices in vain um and so um they it was it wasn't an option doing well in school was um not an option i can remember too you know my dad would have conversations with me about what i was going to do when i grew up and teaching was never one of those options. Wow. Interestingly enough, because he wanted us each to be able uh, to um, be self-sufficient, not be dependent on anyone. And, you know, teachers didn't make a whole lot of money. And that's why I was on the chemical engineering path. And I can tell you that when he found out that I had switched careers. It was for both of my parents. They were devastated. They were like, what have you done? You're throwing away um, your life. This career. Are they, are they still alive now or not no, anymore? No, they're not. But they, they have they seen um, this pathway though. Have they seen you rise now? They did. They had okay. seen me where, and, and they saw how much I love teaching. Right. So I would talk about my class when I was a teacher, they'd see projects I'd invite them over so they could, you know, when we had school events. And so they saw how happy I was. And they actually were alive um, up until I became uh, chief academic officer. So they were able to see that trajectory and that uh, passion. And um, they knew that that was the right decision. But uh, when I had to have the initial conversation, it, it was rough. <laughs> I think that resonates with a lot of people of their parents, whether it's whatever decision they're making or teaching specifically that that conversation can be really hard. I have to know, I know you have some of your own children. Is your message education first is your first priority as well, just like your parents? Yes. Um, education for, for our kids. And um, I have three and they all um, have done very well, um, successful. Um, and, you know, um, I tell them fam family is first, right? Um, and we um, have a very tight-knit family of support, but they all knew that, you know, school was the, was the next important thing because 
no one can take that away from you. And um, it's been great to see how successful they have been and um, how education, it looked different for all three of them, but how each of them has uh, been able to benefit from the incredible teachers and leaders um, in their uh, educational career. Okay, I have to ask a couple more questions about your career. So the first thing I noticed, I, I mean, I noticed a lot of things, but in every step of the way, what you say is, and I loved teaching, and I loved being a principal, and I was so happy. I got to know, like, what's the key to being happy no matter the role? Um, that's a very difficult question. Um, I, I enjoy being around people and I, and I also know myself what makes me comfortable and what makes me uncomfortable. Uh, and I find that the opportunities that have, uh, been afforded to me, have been able to tap into my strengths while at the same time providing just enough of, of, of a growth or an uncomfortableness where um, you had to learn new things or um, you, you, you had a challenge in that new role. And so I think that that has been um, the key is a balance of seeing yourself successful and seeing opportunities where you can become uh, better. All right, let me dial in on the stretch. What's the biggest difference between being a chief academic officer and deputy superintendent? Um, so I would say that it's, um, you know, impact. As chief academic officer, you're, you were focused really on the, on the academic programming. And the, and the supports within that. As deputy superintendent, now you're not only looking at curriculum instruction, but you're looking at research and accountability. You're looking at exceptional student education. You're looking at um, uh, choice. You're looking at career and technical education. And how do we all work together, right? to make sure our students have all of the experiences needed so that they are able to have those choices in those pathways. The other um, difference is that um, I started to delve into the operations side of the house and how operations impacts um, the teaching and learning side of the house. And that's that's not an opportunity that many individuals get. And I can tell you that it was one of the best experiences I had because it challenged me, A, to learn more about facilities, learn more about the operations side of the house, um, and then to be able to see how we can work together to bring down some of those silos that we are better supporting our schools and our teachers and then our, our you know, inevitably our, our students. Um, and so it's, it's kind of from going, I, what I find in my career is that every step of the way, I kind of got to expand yeah. my circle of influence. Um, and that's where that challenge comes in because there were aspects of the work that were brand new to me. And, um, being able to 
not only start to learn more about that, but then how does that dovetail into our core mission of educating our students? Okay, and then what is the biggest difference between being the deputy superintendent and the superintendent? <laughs> did you just laugh at me? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Um, so I'm going to preface this by saying um, that uh, it's been an incredibly um, – I think it's the to- the point that we are in time, okay? But really, it's the politics of it, right? And the increase in um, politics in the boardroom and in the classroom, um, and knowing how to navigate um, around that so that we see that as an opportunity, not as a a deficit or an obstacle. And so, as I am, you know, leading the district and trying to keep people focused on our job, which is educating our children. As you have these various, you know, political forces that are um, weaving themselves into the boardroom is how do you stay focused on your core business? And then how do you help people navigate that space where we don't let the noise deter us from our work and um, build collaboration instead of dividing people. I think I, I think you're really hitting on it. I think it's really hard not to fill division in some of these things. And I, I, we keep hearing it again and again from superintendents is just how hard the political situation is. Um, one of the things I'm hanging on to right now is we had an author on, Rudo Sepetis, and her books have been banned in a couple of places. Um, and I asked her, like, how do, you, how do you think about that? And she said, I think it is great that parents want to be involved in what their kids are reading. We just need to help them find the way to do it the right way. You know, like, there's nothing wrong with parents wanting to be involved. Like, how do we help them get, their, get, to, get to the place where it's m- meaningful and beneficial? And I think that you're hitting on it. It's like people who come, whether they're coming upset about a book or whatever it is, or emotional or charged or political, like, how do we help them be involved and not just push them out because we might not agree? And I think that sure. that's it's really powerful and a really hard job that I'm glad I don't have to necessarily do every day. <laughs> yeah, but now more than ever, parents are such a vital role in, um, in their child's education because there's so many ways for them to know what's going on, to be able to give feedback to what's happening. And the more we have parents engaged and involved, the more or the better we're going to be able to serve our children. And so it really is an opportunity for us to capitalize on. Yeah, I think you keep coming back to this. It's like the parents have to be there. The parents have to be there. I really appreciate that. Okay, in your story, you know, like your career trajectory, one of the things that you mentioned is like, and I was sure I was going to retire, and I was sure I was going to retire. And here you are, and you're talking about the politics of the job. I'm sure you love it just like you've loved everything else. But like what inspires you to keep going every day and what gives you hope? Um, so, um, really it's, it's the same thing. Um, it's, it's the children, it's my own grandchildren, uh, me being able, um, to look at our district and be able to say, yes, this, this is the best place for my own grandchildren to receive the very best education there is in the world. Um, and they are also what inspire me because I see 
the potential that exists again if we are if we have the courage to rethink how we use time and space and resources to educate our children there's no limit to what they will be able to attain um i am so um inspired by our our young people their activism, their engagement in the community, their advocacy, their insights about the world, education. And so I, I think we are in, in great hands knowing that that passion, that zeal for giving back to the community and understanding that we have the power to make our communities great. Uh, and they're not afraid to do that. So it's, it really is the, the children, the students that uh, give me hope and inspire me. I, I'm inspired by how often you go back to the kids. I think it means a lot to everyone in your community that that matters so much to you. All right, we are running low on time. And so I have five questions I ask every guest and we're gonna go there now. The first question is the podcast is called More Than a Test because um, at Amira, the company I work for, uh, we believe that assessments on literacy could be every single day instead of just three times a year. And we're trying to push everyone to more than a test in our assessments. But every guest reads that and thinks of something else. When you read More Than a Test, what did you think of? When I read More Than a Test, I uh, thought it was... uh, more than just memorizing, that you really try to get to the heart, you try to get to um, the the why, that's not usually what you get through in a, in a regular test. I feel like you try to get to the why in everything you do. Why are kids not learning? Why isn't this working? What's happening here? I, I love that about you. All right. I want you to tell me a story of one literary moment in your life that has either stays with you or has changed you. So thinking about a moment of you and a book whether with you're with someone else or not, that, that you hold on to? Um, sure. So I can vividly remember um, when I learned how to read. Like I, I, and I learned to read in Spanish. So I see myself in my home. I was five years old. I was in my parents' bedroom and they had these uh, books. They were onion skin paper and I remember, I would, we would play. My sister and I would play school and stuff. And so we would open up the books and just, you know, pretend to read. And I remember opening up the book, looking at it, and I was sounding out the letters. And I go, oh, my God, I know what that is. And so I remember, I remember learning how to read. And that feeling of, oh, my gosh, I can. And then I went and I opened up another book and I sounded out. And so that's never left me. That's the joy really of being able to read. Uh, that's, that's really beautiful. Not a lot of people have that memory. That's great. All right. A piece of tech that you really love. Um, so I really do love, uh, now you're talking about like a physical. Anything any- you want. It can be a software. It can be a device that you use. It can be a program you use. Excel. So I don't I'm care. Very, what do you love? I'm very intrigued by um, artificial intelligence and um, and the chat uh uh, GDT yeah. that is out there because um, of its impact on on education. And right now, um, 
there's so many unknowns about it. And so I am intrigued. I've started to play around with it. And I got to tell you, I'm a little fascinated by how you can just in a matter of seconds or minutes have something that's created. So that's the first thing. The second thing really is um, I absolutely love my phone because, (laughs) no, because there's so much that I can do with it not just communicate, but keep track health-wise. I was turned on by one of my kids about um, an app that really does help track health-wise. Um, and so I, I, I think it's, it's amazing. And it's something that if we can put in the hands of, of our families and our kids, it really is, is transformational. That's great. Um, both of those answers were lovely and surprising. Um, best advice you were ever given? Best advice I was ever given is um, uh, to not sell not sell yourself short. Give yourself the opportunity um, uh, to uh, to succeed. And so that was in reference to me not wanting um, to um, really apply for uh, a, a grant that we were having. And I was thinking of all the reasons why the time, and they said, you know what, you're, you're talented. Don't, 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 uh, exclude yourself. Let them exclude you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Okay. And one book you think everyone should read. Um, so I'm currently reading, um, driving innovation from within and the power that, um, group think has when you're trying to resolve a problem and how that gives you um, different set of eyes and perspectives. And so it's been um, very interesting. The other one that I um, absolutely loved is um, everything I need to learn I uh, to know I learned in kindergarten. kindergarten. And just um, getting along with people, being able to, um, be respectful of one another, being, um, able to listen and not necessarily, um, react or assume that one way is the, is the right way. And I think right now we need to be kind. We need to be kinder. I think that's a lovely way to end. It's just a reminder. I think that this talk, this conversation has really reminded me of the importance of humility, of the importance of, you know, taking the opportunities that come, loving where you are, but also looking forward. And, and again, just to be kind. Thank you so much for your time. I've heard your email kind of thing ring a couple of times and I can tell you're super busy. So it means the world to me, Maria. Thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.